Amen. So the formal establishment of a nation called Israel began with God calling the 12 sons of Jacob out of Egypt. A people that had begun as a family of 70 had grown into several million. And nearly half a millennia earlier, God had God had made a promise. He had entered into a covenant with Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, and he had told him, I'm going to bring you into a good and fertile land. I'm going to bless those that bless you. I'm going to curse those that curse you. From you are going to come too many babies to count. An old man, well past his prime. Yet your children will be like the stars or like the, like the sand on the shore of the sea. And then ultimately, the ultimate blessing that will come upon all mankind, the most perfect gift that ever was, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, would come from his line. And then God would reaffirm that covenant. He would reaffirm that promise with Abram's son, Isaac, and then with Isaac's son, Jacob. And, and we, we read about that as, as God's talking to Jacob there in Genesis 35, 10 through 12. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall your name be. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. The path to blessing was going to be tough. As a matter of fact, God had told Abraham that these people were going to spend some 400 years in oppression and slavery there in Egypt. They were going to be ruled by this, by this, pagan, this pagan nation. And then, at the end of that appointed time, God rose up a man, an intercessor, a mediator, a man that would represent God between that would be a representative between God and man. He would speak to man on behalf of God. He would speak to God on behalf of man, a man named Moses. And then he sent this man named Moses to go and speak to the king, to call his people out of slavery. Exodus 4, 22 through 23 says this, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. This people, now a large people, this was God's firstborn son, a son called Israel. Of course, the king wouldn't relent. He wouldn't let go of the people. And so God judged the people of Egypt with plagues, with pestilence. He judged them. He crushed them so that they would let loose of his firstborn son, Israel, and that they could, in fact, come to him. And initially, it's a coming through the water. At the parting there of the Red Sea, that initially the people would come through the water to come out and, and meet God. And they would meet him there in the wilderness. For 40 years, they would be tested there with God. And they would meet with God up on a mountain. And then again, passing through water, the Jordan River. Passing through water to come into this promised land that he had, that he had given them. And he had told them. He had, he had warned them. And he had told them in Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But they did not obey and they did not keep his covenants. Oh, how they failed. In almost every way imaginable, they showed themselves to be unfaithful and weak. And yet God in his grace and in his mercy, he continued to treat these people as his own. He continued to bless them among all the nations. He continued to bestow upon them promises like this. And now much had happened between the time in which Joshua led Israel through the Jordan River into the promised land and the time when we look up and find a man named John the Baptizer there at that very same Jordan. Israel had fallen a long way from where their God had called them to be. They looked nothing like the nation, the firstborn son that God had built all those years earlier. So much so that when the offer of salvation came, when the offer of reconciliation between themselves and God came, they despised the message and they killed the messenger. This firstborn son, this Israel, this was not what God had called them to be. Their shepherds had failed them. Sure, there were some people within the nation that would truly come to see, they would come to believe, they would come to trust. But the leaders of the nation, those that had risen to the position of, of political leaders, religious leaders, their shepherds, their shepherds had failed them. They had completely missed the mark so that the nation as a whole, they were blinded. They completely missed what God was there to do for them. And then we meet another son, a true son, a faithful son, a son by nature, not a son by adoption, not a son chosen from all the nations of the world, an eternal son, a begotten son, not a born son, one that was in every way God as God was God, and yet a son, begotten from the Father and then sent, that this was the son, a son that the Father loved. He also passed through water. There it is, baptism. We, re we remember the, the, the passing through the water. He also was called out of Egypt. We remember when he was a young child and Herod was out to get him. We, we read these words in Matthew 2, 13 through 15. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and he departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. He called this son out of Egypt too. This son passed through the water, water too, and this son would also be tested in the wilderness. Instead of 40 years, it was 40 days. And unlike the first Israel, unlike the first son that would receive manna from heaven day in and day out, this son would receive no food. He would receive no physical sustenance there in the wilderness. And yet, under the full temptation of the evil one, where the first Israel would fail, where the first son would turn his back, where the first son would grumble and gripe and ask to go back to Egypt, this son would endure. To the very end, every single temptation, every single thing that was thrown at him, every single test, he would prove himself to be faithful and righteous and true at every moment. And the power of the Holy Spirit and leaning on the word of God over and over and over again, he would prove himself to be the true Israel. The son that his father beloved. All that God had intended for his people to be was manifest here in his son. 
Keeping the law perfectly, not just every dot, not just every tittle, not just every stroke, not just every letter, but the Spirit, perfectly and completely. This is what God meant Israel to be. This was his son. God had spoken through the prophet Isaiah that this one would come. He had promised that there was one that was coming, a true Israelite, one that truly loved the Father, one that truly saw all that was happening, one that was going to manifest before our very eyes what it meant to be one of God's chosen people. Making clear that true Israel is not just about being born to the right family. God had been trying to show them that throughout all history. He had been trying to show them throughout all history that true Israel is a faithful son. True Israel is one that believes in me, that trusts in me, that loves me, that gives their heart to me. It's not about just your bloodlines. It's not just about being born into a certain family. That true Israel is a faithful son. That true Israel is righteous at every moment. It is faithful in every moment. It is obedient in every moment. It is loving in every moment. That at all moments, true Israel was in perfect fellowship and communion with God. And here he is, born to a nobody family in a nobody town. You remember the words of Isaiah 53, 2 through 3. We read them every time we come to the Lord's table. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. True Israel, this beloved son, he was going to hold no fancy titles. He wasn't going to be invited to the best parties. The only earthly crown that he would wear would be one of thorns. In the moments before his death, and yet here he is. This is what it means to be the son of God. This is what it means to be true Israel. This is what it means to belong and be the chosen people of God. And he's showing it. And so this morning we come to a point where we find him here. True Israel, the son of God, more glorious than Moses, more faithful than Jacob. They're on a mountain calling 12 to himself. So with that, stand to your feet as we read together from Mark's gospel. We're still in the third chapter. We'll be reading verses 13 through 21. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. I don't know that I'm going to get to the point where I get to preach this, but there have never been more glorious words spoken. Those whom Jesus desires. I pray that that speaks to your heart. And I pray that that is the deepest longing to be wanted. Jesus Christ, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He approached, excuse me, he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brothers of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, which is sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And all God's people said, amen, you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? And would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. 
So thus far, Jesus has spent a little over a year and a half out preaching this gospel, showing himself to be the Son of God, true Israel, that which was promised, and preaching the gospel of reconciliation that is found through repentance and faith in him. And is a sign of the veracity of his claims, of the truthfulness of his message, of the reality of his identity, he continued to heal and to perform miracles and to cast out demons so that just throngs and throngs of people came to him, seeking that which only he could offer. But he wasn't there to build a crowd. And while he didn't despise the crowd, while he didn't reject the crowd, while he cared about each and every individual that was there, they were, after all, crafted in the image of God, that wasn't his ultimate plan. And so he would, he would retreat. Time and time and time again, we would find him retreating because the people just didn't get it. They couldn't get it. They were helpless, lost little sheep. And they were too willing to, sat, to settle for the, the little crumbs that fell from his table. They were, too willing to, they were too willing to settle for the gifts to the point that they had completely missed the giver. And so we find him yet again retreating. Verse 13, and he went up the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. This is what Jesus was prone to do. Go up onto the mountain and be alone with the Father. And what you'll find throughout Scripture is that mountains tend to represent God's presence and God's revelation to his people. I mean, just looking through a, just a brief survey, it was on a mountain, Mount Ararat, where Noah and the ark came to rest, where God gave his covenant, signed with the rainbow, showing that he would never again flood the earth. It was on a mountain, Mount Moriah, where God called Abram to take his beloved son, Isaac, to take him up there and sacrifice him. Of course, God would spare the boy. And yet it was there that he yet again ratified this, this promise, this covenant with Abraham. It was on that same mountain that some thousand years later that King David would capture this place. That ultimately his son Solomon would, would build a temple where God's presence would dwell with his people. It was on a mountain, Mount Sinai, where God would meet with his people, where he would give his law. He was calling them out of Egypt to meet with them there on a mountain, on Mount Sinai. It was on a mountain. It was on Mount Nebo, where Moses was allowed to go up and look into the promised land before he died. And then God buried him there. It was on a mountain, Mount Carmel, where Elijah the prophet went, and he, and he battled against the prophets of Baal, although you could hardly call it a battle because it was fire that came from heaven that consumed the bulls. And then he slew the men, those that had blasphemed God and chased after a God that was not a God. It was on a mountain. I believe Mount Hermon, where the inner circle, the three, went up with Jesus and watched him there in the transfiguration as he was there with Moses and Elijah, giving them a glimpse of his glory that was going to come. And it was on a mountain, the Mount of Olives, Mount Olivet, where Jesus ascended into heaven. And depending on the way you understand the end times, that may be the place to where he returns. Do you think perhaps God is showing us that he wants you to go on a mountain and meet with him? Field trip. God continually uses the mountains as a place of his revelation, as an opportunity to meet with his people. And I don't know why. It's not as if we can get to heaven if we climb high enough. But there's something about the solitude, perhaps, the strenuous effort that it takes for us to get up there. I don't know, but he's calling him up onto a mountain. And Luke tells us that he was there and he prayed the whole night. He just went the whole night, something like 10 hours there, praying to the Father. And with good reason, because what he was about to do was one of the most critical things in the history of the world. And he needed, in his humanity, he needed guidance from the Father. He needed to hear from the Father. He needed to know the Father's will. He needed to ask the Father's blessing. 
on the decisions that he was about to make. So after 10 hours of prayer, Luke tells us that Jesus called the disciples to him. Now, as we've discussed throughout our time in Mark, Jesus had a lot of disciples. A disciple was a follower. More than a follower, it was a learner. We talked about the fact that Jesus had a lot of disciples, people that were following after him, and all kinds of people had disciples. Rabbis had disciples. Any kind of teacher could have a disciple, a learner. Now, the way that it works with the rabbis was, it's a little bit like applying to college. The rabbis would travel from town to town, and they would teach. And if people liked what they heard, they thought that they, that they, they taught with wonderful enough words, and there was something to be learned from them, they would come and they would apply. I'd like to be your disciple. I'd like to come after you. And if they showed enough understanding of the Torah, if they showed enough, showed themselves to be enough of a prospect, then he would allow them. They would agree. Yes, you're my disciple now. And they would follow with him and they would go. In Jesus' case, he was the one calling the disciples. We read about him calling several of these disciples. Well, there's others certainly that just kind of came to them on his own accord. But we read about him calling and looking and saying, follow me. Follow after me. Come and learn from me. Come and walk with me. And so we read here that Jesus called the disciples to himself. And then again, Mark uses that phrase, those that he desired. Verse 14, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. Now, in, in some manuscripts, a manuscript is just an early fragment or portion of God's word. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's an original writing of, of God's word. And so in some of the early manuscripts, those words that are in parentheses, are they in parentheses in your Bible? Those words that are in parentheses, whom he also named apostles. And some of the early, early manuscripts, those words aren't included. And, and I, I want to digress for a minute, but I, I think it's worthwhile. I have staked my eternity on the words in this book. Everything that I know about Jesus Christ came as a result of somebody preaching to me from this book, my own reading of this book, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I would stake my physical life. I would lay down my life today, my physical life today, to defend the words that are in this book and stake my eternal life on the veracity of these claims, on the truth of what is found in God's Word. And so that when I, when I, when I come to passages like this, where there's notes in my Bible that say, this may not have been found in the earliest of transcripts, of, of manuscripts, excuse me, my confidence only grows. Because here's the thing, the men and women, the faithful stewards, the translators that set about to take God's Word and to give it to us in our language, they are not infallible. They are not inerrant. They're, they're men, women, just like you and I. And so that when they set about to handle God's infallible, inerrant word, they recognize we can make some mistakes here. And so in, in their transparency and in their deep desire to make certain that they pull back the curtain, they say, full disclosure, when they come to a situation like this, you'll find this at various places throughout Scripture. Not a lot, but you'll find this from place to place where there'll be an asterisk or there'll be some parentheses and there'll be a note at the bottom basically saying, this may not have been in the original. That's the level of transparency. That's the level of truth. Listen, if you're building a cult, you're building a religion, if you're falsifying God's word, you wouldn't do that. Why would you do that? And yet they, they pull back the curtain. They say, here, we don't know for sure if this is here. Now what you'll find is, praise God, that the times when we come to those places where we're not completely sure that this was in the original writings, it's never anything which is going to constitute any real break in faith or understanding of who God is. Like we're going to come to that at the end of Mark's gospel. 
If you, get, if you get to the end of Mark's gospel, you'll find that there's some words there that weren't in the earliest of transcripts, so we won't preach them. But the beauty is those words are found in other gospels. And that's the case that we find here. So that whether Mark actually wrote the words whom he also named apostles or not, it doesn't matter because Luke did say it. You see? So we can stand there confident and say he was calling his apostles. We know this by the fact that he was calling them. We know this by the fact that Luke also recorded it for us. This just caused me to grow in confidence when I stand upon the truth of God's word. And we don't know the logistics about how he did this. It seems to me that there was this massive crowd of disciples that were following Jesus, and he just called them all. Okay, come up the mountain. Come up the mountain. And there, in the presence of these hundreds, thousands, he started to name them off, one by one, this roll call as he calls out to the 12. 12 men out of hundreds. Calling them to something different. What a blessing to follow after God, to walk with Jesus Christ, to learn with him. But now he was calling these 12 aside, and he hadn't taken applications. They hadn't put their name in a hat. He didn't form a search committee. This was surely what he was doing with God and those, he was doing with the Father in those, in those 10 hours of prayer. Knowing the hearts of men, knowing the men that needed to be chosen, even knowing the heart of Judas Iscariot who would betray him and how that man would play into his greater purpose. It was at this moment that he's calling them to himself. He was moving them to something different. He was moving them closer from disciple to apostle. Now, apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos. This means a person that is sent. And so I've had people ask me before. Surely your children have asked you before. There was some point in your life when you wondered, what's the difference between a disciple and an apostle? And, we, and we, as we've just discovered, right, that a disciple is one that follows. He's one that learns. Not everybody that came to Jesus was a disciple. There were some people that just came for healing. There were some people that just came for bread. But then there were some that came, and once there, and hearing the message of Jesus Christ, hearing the message of his gospel, they discerned this was a man to link their life with. And so they followed him. Some followed him for a season. Some followed him for a longer period. There's people coming and going. The number of disciples was changing. But that's what a disciple was, a follower of Jesus Christ. And it is perfectly accurate and right and true to say that we ourselves are disciples of Jesus Christ. While we don't see him physically, we hear his word. We're part of his body. We're following him. That's why you'll often hear me talk about following after Christ. Almost never. I can't think of a time in the last 10 years at least when I've asked someone, are you a Christian? Because that's just checking a box. It's are you a Muslim? Are you a Hindu? Are you an atheist? Are you a Scientologist? Are you a Christian? You're going to check a box and that's the one that I'm going to check. The real question is, are you a follower? Are you a disciple? Are you following after Jesus Christ? And that's what our aim is here as a church. Not just to make a bunch of people that believe intellectually in who Jesus is, but to show people what it means to follow him. And so it is right and it is true and it is good for us to say that we are disciples. But an apostle is a disciple that has been given authority and sent in his name. He has passed on some of his authority to these people, and he has sent them out to go in his name. You've likely heard it said that all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. So what we see here is him transitioning these 12 people to apostleship. And it can be confusing at times because there's times we will come, and he'll just refer to the 12 as his 12 disciples. But 
this, this apostleship, this would have been a thing that people were familiar with. Anybody with authority, just as they had the ability to have disciples, people that followed them, they had the ability to send apostles, send people entrusted with their authority to go out and carry out a word. If I was a, government, a governmental authority of some sort, I could send somebody in my name to make a decree, to make a statement, to make a promise, and the person on the other end of that word would be required to uphold it just as if I had said it myself. This was a, this was a very official thing. And people in this place in the world, they would, have been, they would have been familiar with the idea of what it meant to be an apostle. Yet, with regards to Jesus Christ, we need to understand that this was a very special group for a very special time. We read about some of the guidelines there. You remember after, after Judas took his life and the other 11 are there and they're trying to figure out, what do, we do, what do we need to do? Clearly 12 was the number that God had called us to have. We need to replace him with someone. In Acts 2, or excuse me, Acts 1, 21 through 22, we read this. So some of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. So that the, an apostle had to be one that was there with Jesus from the moment of his baptism till his resurrection. Remember, there's people that were coming and going. There was people that were disciples for a while, and then he started talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and they said, we're out. So it must be one that stuck with him throughout the entirety of this. And there would have been a number of people that met this criteria. But in addition to that, they had to be chosen by God. You'll remember there in the book of Acts that there was two. There was two that they had put forward. Mattathias, right, and a man named Justus, J-U-S-T-U-S. I love that name. I love it. If one of you will have a little boy and name him Justice, J-U-S-T-U-S, he will immediately become my favorite little boy in this whole church. I will spoil him. But they had two so they had to cast lots to figure out what is God's will. What is God's will and what is God's desire for who he is? So we see this here. We see this here. This one that must have been with Jesus throughout all. Because they're going to be his representatives. They're going to preach the things that he preached. They're going to talk with his authority. They have to have been set aside by Jesus. Called, set aside by him for this specific purpose. That's why it's so ludicrous today when we see these people that just throw the name apostle onto the front of themselves. Apostle Skippy John Jones. He ain't. See, you can make disciples. I can run around and make followers for myself. I'm more into making followers of Jesus. But I could if I wanted, I guess. Convince some people to be my disciples. And then I could even send some apostles out. I could send some people out. But I can only send them with as much authority as I possess. I can't send my kids down the courthouse and say, Daddy's not paying his taxes this year. I don't have that authority. So if I wanted to make a bunch of powerless authority-free apostles that could go out and just make a bunch of declarations and get slapped in the face, I could do that. But I don't have the authority from Jesus Christ to go and pass his authority in this way on to other people. So we need to be very leery of people that just anoint themselves, to just claim themselves to be an apostle. That door's closed. This is a very special group of people for a very special time, but I need you to understand what God was doing here in this moment. The foundation that he was laying, the seeds that he was planting. Everything that we do today as a church was grounded. It's finding its beginning. This is the genesis right here of this thing that we call the church. It was bigger than these people could have ever possibly understood. Certainly, you've got to imagine that there was some anxiety, some anticipation, some excitement as you stand there among hundreds and Jesus calls your name. I would imagine that these men had, we, we know for certain that the, that the Peters and the James and the John, they'd had some interaction with them. But to hear him call your name, to set you aside, 
to appoint you to this role. But even still, they could not possibly understand the magnitude of what he was doing right here. As true Israel, God's perfect son, the only completely and wholly true and faithful Israelite, the one that showed what it truly meant to be chosen of God, what it truly meant to be God's son as he calls you. After more than a year of making clear that this old religious system was incompatible with the gospel, after making, making so clear over a year that this system which led, which led to ceremony over mercy, which, which led to the point of worrying about the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law, led to trying to catch other people tripping up in sin over loving your neighbor, extending grace and compassion and mercy as God's representatives on his earth, that it was so incompatible, now he was turning, he was saying, now let me show you. Now let me show you what it means to belong to my Father. And I'm calling you 12 and I'm setting you aside. This is a foundation that was being laid right here. He'd exposed the heart of the leaders that were already here. Remember I told you a few weeks ago that the thing that brings out legalism, the thing that brings out this despicable heart that just wants always justice and always judgment and always condemnation, that the thing that puts that on display most is this radical display of grace. That's what Jesus was doing at times. He had, he had exposed their leaders' hearts. And now he was setting aside these new leaders. And he was showing it was no longer about bloodlines. It was no longer about family ties. It was no longer about tribe. He was opening the door for you and I to come into his kingdom. He was opening the door for you and I to be called his people right here, showing no longer do we come through the 12 tribes. We read about this in Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. So then you, he's talking about Gentiles, excuse me. So then you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on what? Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, I've got to be very careful right here. I found myself this week writing a whole other sermon on a whole other text when I came to this point. And, and, and I've got to trust that when God wants us as a faith family to come together and really wrestle with the church and the tribes of Israel and God's promises to Israel versus what is he doing in the church and where does this covenant, how does this covenant affect us and the promises to Abraham, do they have any place in us? I've got to trust that when God brings us to the book of Romans and we go through Romans 9, 10, and 11, that he's going to allow us to, to really unpack that. But I, but I do think that it's critical that we understand the signal that he is sending as he chooses these 12 men. Again, it was no mystery. It was no, it was no accident that this son was called out of Egypt. It was no accident that this son passed through water. It was no accident that this son was tested in the wilderness. It was no accident. God was sending a clear signal as he then met with these 12 men up there on that mountain. These are the 12 that I choose. He was sending a signal loud and clear to the world. No longer is it through bloodlines. No longer is it through this national people called Israel. It's the reason why he chose 12, not 7, not 3, not 10. There was a reason. The new covenant had come. The old covenant had served its purpose. And despite the covenant blessings, despite having the benefit of having lived through these covenant times, the people completely missed it. And yet that covenant had closed and he had come to a new covenant. He was instituting a new covenant as the Christ, the Son of God, the true and perfect Israel. He was calling these 12 and he's saying, this is how you become true Israel. But you must be born, not just of water, not just of blood, but of spirit. 
I don't care about the, the blood coursing through your veins. I care about the spirit that's alive within you. That what it means to be true Israel, what it means to be true sons and daughters of the king of the universe is that through faith and repentance to be found in his son, Jesus Christ, and to be filled with his spirit. That's the picture right here. This is a beautiful picture. Now, we miss it because we didn't live through those times. We've got to struggle in our minds to make these connections because we don't listen around the dinner table as our daddies tell us about the history from Moses through that day. We don't know what it's like to look forward with great anticipation for the Messiah, for the Christ to come and to set us free. We don't know what it's like to wonder if we're truly God's people, why aren't we enjoying his blessing? If we're truly God's people, then why are we continuing to come under, his, under the oppression of these foreign natures? Why did our people get dragged into exile? Why are these Romans here in our land today? And so we struggle in our minds to make these connections, but this should have screamed loud and clear to these people that this is the people that would inherit the kingdom of God. I know that all of you have staked all your claim on your bloodlines, on your ability to rise to some religious power, on your ability to find your place within the synagogues. And what I'm telling you is it is all for naught. It is only those that come to faith in me, those that follow me, those that would call themselves my disciples, those are the ones that are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And it begins with these 12 here. Huge stuff happening at this moment. Huge stuff happening right here. You imagine all these Gentiles that had come They'd come because they heard about Jesus. They'd come because they'd heard about his healing, and yet they never thought there was going to be a place for them within the kingdom of God. They thought, sure, maybe we can be healed for a season, but then when he starts talking about his Father's kingdom, when he starts talking about true Israel, when he starts, I, this makes no sense to me, and there can't be any place for us here. And yet he's kicking the door wide open for them right here. He's saying that all that which had been revealed in my Father's covenants with Abraham and with Moses and with David, it was all pointing to this moment right here, and now here I stand. And he was playing it out, not just with his words, with his actions. Going onto a mountain and calling these men to himself. And this had been God's plan for all eternity. This wasn't plan B. It wasn't, it wasn't as if God looked up and he thought, okay, they're not getting it. You know, I, I used Abraham to try to call them to faith, and they didn't get it. I used Moses to try to show them the spirit of the law, and they didn't get it. I used David to show him the promised king, and they didn't get it. I guess I'm going to sit in the big guns. Here comes Jesus. It had all, at every step, been building to this. This had the signs, the shadows, all pointing to the substance right here at this moment. There was no plan B. Jesus would be dead in just a little over a year. He would rise again to walk for about 40 days, and then the entirety of what he was doing with this new people called the church, this thing that would include Gentiles as well as Jews, this thing that would be only captured through repentance and belief in him. He was leaving it all in the hands of these 12 men right here, lock, stock, and barrel. This is all I got. And so it begins with him calling them to be with him, and this is key. There's so many people that they come to intellectual belief in Jesus Christ, and they immediately want to run out there and know how they're going to be used of him. They immediately want to be a preacher or a missionary or a leader of some sort, and they never spend any time being with Christ. And what you'll find here in the life of these uh, apostles is there's really four steps to this process. The first is here, being with him. So where it begins, you notice he didn't send them out yet. He called them to be with him. That they could, intense time of training and learning, they would have been watching him, they would have been hearing his teaching, and yet now you've got to know that this would have taken on a new meaning. As he told them, I'm going to be sending you out. That's what it means to be an apostle. It's not just to come to me, but it's eventually to go in my authority, to go in my name. And so when Luke tells us that after this, Jesus came down the mountain and he taught and he healed, don't you know their ears were a little more perked up this time? We're going to possibly be doing this someday. 
We need to pay a little more attention to what he says, to the way he receives the crowd, to the way he relates to the Father, to the power of his teaching. They had a brand new, ur- brand new urgency for these people as they came here. And then once we get to Mark 6, what we see is he sends them out in pairs of two. They weren't ready to go alone yet. He was going to send them out in pairs of two to preach and to heal and to cast out demons. And then before heading to, heading to heaven, and step three, he just kind of sums it all up for them with a great commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things I have commanded you, and surely I will be with you even unto the end of the age. Let me sum up for you what it is that I'm calling you to go do. And then finally, as the Holy Spirit comes upon them at the day of Pentecost, they receive the promised Holy Spirit, and boom, it takes off. All the things which didn't make sense before that, all the power that they were lacking before that, all the abilities that they could not muster before that, it all came to pass right there at that moment. All the things that Jesus said before which didn't make sense, right there in that moment, they were there, and the foundation of the church was laid right in that moment. Not just in their ability to go out and heal, not just in their ability to go out and preach the gospel, but there was authority in their words. We know this because as we read about the life of the early church in Acts 2, already, think about this, already by Acts 2, What were the people doing? What did it mean to be the church? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They had been with Jesus Christ. They had been there for the entirety of his ministry. They had been in the inner circle that heard his teaching and heard his preaching. We'll see this. We'll see this theme kind of break out in the book of Mark going forward of insiders and outsiders. They're the outsiders that get to hear his teaching in general, and then he'll call them to the side. You know, give them this inside information. They had been with him in that way. Now they're powered by his Holy Spirit, and now they're going out and teaching in authoritative ways. And the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. We also know that these 12 are going to have a place in the end times. We also know that it's not just about laying the foundation of the church. We know that when we get to the end, we'll find them sitting in seats of judgment. Luke 22, 28 through 30. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father has assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. These men weren't born into these positions. They had not risen through the ranks on their own, but because they had been with Jesus Christ, because of the authority that he entrusted to them, because he had set them aside and chosen them in this way, they would sit, they would sit in judgment over the tribes. So I struggled this week greatly with, okay, well, what do I do with these guys then? Because all Scripture's about God. The whole thing's about God and what God's doing and about God's glory. And these passages aren't ultimately about these 12 men. They're about Jesus. Just 12 ordinary dudes. And yet they're so critical. What God is doing through them is so critical. It's not that these are great men. It's that they served a great God. And he chose to do great things through them. These 12 ordinary dopes. Truly, Jesus was showing that God chooses the foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Just a ragtag bunch of, nobody would have guessed it. Nobody would have guessed that these were the men. And yet what we'll find at the end is not only will they sit in, will they, not only will they sit in judgment over the tribes of Israel, but as we are walking into the heavenly Jerusalem, I love this picture, as we are walking into the heavenly city of Jerusalem, it is over their names that we will step. 
as we will see the tribes, the names of the tribes up high, we will be stepping over these stones, the foundation of these 12 men that Jesus called right at this moment. Revelation 21, 11 through 14. Having the glory of God, it's talking about the holy city, heavenly Jerusalem. Having the glory of God, it's radiance, like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as a crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and all the gates where the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on, on the east, three gates, and on the north, three gates, and on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. We don't celebrate this, man, as if in and of themselves they are something, and yet in the hands of the living God, was crafting them into the foundation of the church, our place within the kingdom of God, the door that was open to us. He was doing incredible things right here in this moment. So I, I wrestled greatly with, what do I do? How do, how do we, how do we inter, inter, interact with this text? Well, lucky for you, it's 10.05, so we don't have time. But we read their names. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee. By the way, please don't, please don't understood what I, said, what I said earlier to me, that every time you see parentheses, that that's an indicator that it may not have been in the original. That's not always what a parenthetical statement is for. You've got to read your notes, right? You, you, you read your notes to know. This is not one of those times where the parentheses tells us that this isn't something that was in the original manuscript. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So what you will find is that there are four places in the Gospels where the apostles are listed. There's Matthew 10, there's Mark 3, there's Luke 6, and there's Acts 1. But Luke got two cracks at it. And where you see the, the names of the apostles listed. And, and there'll be minor differences with regards to the order that they're presented. But what you will find is that they're always presented in the same three groups. I called them the A team, the B team, and the C team. And Leanne told me I couldn't do that. Especially not after just telling you how important what God did through them was. And yet what you'll find is that they're always found in these three groups. The lists and the A team always begin with Peter, the clear leader. Always. And within that group is always John and James, the sons of Zebedee. And, and, we, and we, we know a lot about these guys. We heard their calling. Remember when, when you go back to the beginning of Mark and, and some of our time in John where we, where we see Jesus' calling of, of James and John and Peter and Andrew and, and, and Philip. They were among that group. So we, in this first group, you've always got Peter, you've got James, you've got John, and then you've got Andrew. He rounds out the group of four. You, you, you find them always in that order right there. And we know more about these four than we do any of the other groups. Then the second group, it always begins with Philip. Always. And, and you'll remember Jesus calling Philip back in John 1. And he went and got the guy named Nathaniel and called him to himself. So what you'll find in the list is it's always Philip. And then along with Philip is Bartholomew. And we don't hear anything about this Bartholomew guy anywhere other than the list. But what people that are smarter than me tell me is that Bartholomew was actually an Aramaic name that meant Bar-Talmai, son of Talmai. This was telling us who this man's father was. This wasn't necessarily his proper name. And so 
scholars tell us it's very likely, it's very likely because of the way we read about Nathaniel in John's gospel, it's very likely that this is Nathaniel. And that would make sense because we see Philip and Nathaniel together in John 1. So we've got Bartholomew, who may have been Nathaniel. Those two are always together. And then one thing we do know, if Bartholomew is Nathaniel, he's the one that said of Jesus, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? And yet Jesus chose him. And then the group is rounded out by Matthew, who's Levi the tax collector. We obviously know a lot about him. And then Thomas the doubter. You see the trend here? And then we get to the third group. The third group always begins with James, the son of Alphaeus. We don't know anything about James, the son of Alphaeus, other than his daddy's name was Alphaeus. We know that Matthew's daddy's name was also Alphaeus. We don't know that they're brothers. It seems like they would have told us if they were brothers, but probably not. Then we read about Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. Now, Luke, when Luke talks about, and, and Luke and in Acts, when he talks about Thaddeus, he lists him as Judas. And what we find there is that Judas, there's, there's a couple of possible nicknames here. Thaddeus can mean mama's boy, or he could have been Labius, which means courage. Maybe. I don't know. But I love the fact that these men had nicknames. Sons of Thunder, Mama's Boy, or Courage. I like Mama's Boy. And I like to imagine that Jesus is, you know, the one handing out the nicknames. It was probably Big Mouth Peter, right? I mean, he's calling people something. You know, hey, now you're fatty, you're shorty, you're bald, you're whatever, right? And he's, he's, he's handing out these names. And so, but we, we don't know much about Thaddeus or Judas. Now, Jesus had a brother named Judas, but we read in Scripture that Jesus' family, they didn't, they didn't get it, Right? His brothers didn't understand it until he died. And so it's very unlikely that this was any Judas other than just Judas. It was called Thaddeus. And that they were just calling him Thaddeus because they wanted to separate him from Judas Iscariot. So when we read about Simon the Zealot, again, another man we don't know much about. But the fact that they call him the Zealot, there was a, there was a sect of Jewish people called the Zealots that absolutely hated the Romans. They were looking for rebellion. They were looking for every opportunity they could to take back their place from the Romans, so much so that there were some zealots that would walk around with daggers, and they would just be waiting to catch a, uh, some kind of Roman guard slipping. They'd slip that, slip that dagger in and take their life. Can you imagine if this is, in fact, why they call this man Simon the Zealot? Not because he took somebody's life necessarily, but because he was a zealot against Rome in this way. What do you think the relationship was like between him and Levi, the tax collector, the traitor to his own people? This is an eclectic group. This is not a group that would have chosen to hang, hang out together. In any way. And then finally, lastly, is Judas Iscariot. Iscariot means man of Keroth, telling us where he's from. And if that's accurate, if he is from this place, he's the only outsider. Everybody else was, that seems to be from around the area of Galilee. And yet this one outsider, called from further in the south, closer to, closer to Judea, yet this is the one that Jesus called knowing. Every one of these lists talks about the fact. They make it clear. He's the betrayer. Spoiler alert. Like, there should be a spoiler alert in there, Right? So that when we get to the Last Supper and he's saying, one of you will betray me, we're all going, it's Judas. So we know because they tell us. Even when Jesus called him, he knew that according to his father's purpose, this one needed to be called. This traitor needed to be in there. So we see these three groups. And as we move through each of these three groups, really we do. We know progressively less, with exception of Judas, it's always listed last. We know progressively less about who these men are. But what we know without a shadow of a doubt is that God was going to do something magnificent through them that as jesus was there on the mountain true israel the son of god he was saying do you want it you want to know what it looks like for you yourself to be the true israel of god behold come to me in faith come to me in repentance 
And you too can be the true Israel of God, the blessings of God upon you, inherit the kingdom of God. You come to me in this way. And you can imagine the people squinting like, like you just ran out the bad news bears. What are you talking about? These? And he says, yes. This is exactly the kind of men I use. This is exactly the kind of men I call. Because those that raise themselves, those that, those that rise to religious leadership, those that come from the right parties, those that like to have their hands shaked in the sh- sh- shake, shaken, in the street, those that like to be patted on the back, they completely miss it. They will have no place. I mourn for them because they will burn forever in complete separation from my Father. So yes, these are them. This is the foundation of this thing I'm building called the church. So Christian, I, I pray that's a word of encouragement to you this morning. That you look at these guys, you look at these nobodies, you recognize the kind of men that God calls to himself, people that would not have otherwise hung out, that you recognize that in the hands of God, they're being, they being used as living stones to build this glorious temple, the dwelling place of God, that he can use men just like this. And I know how unworthy you feel, because I feel unworthy. I know how many times you've failed because I've failed. And yet, as we walk forward through this process, and what you find in the lives of these people is that they lack spiritual understanding. Jesus would go out and he would preach a parable. He would call them aside. He would say, do you understand? And they'd all go, they didn't. They never did. They were always confused. They lacked humility. As they watched their master serve and talk about laying down, their, laying down his life, they continually, Father, would you make us the, would you make us the greatest in the kingdom? Mama, 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 go tell Jesus. Go tell Jesus, let me sit on his right hand and his left hand. They weren't the brightest. They weren't the most humble. They weren't the most faithful. Jesus would continue to look at him and go, why do you lack faith? You've been with me so long, and you still don't rightly believe. And they lacked commitment. We watched what happened at the end as the shepherd was struck, and they just scattered. They went running. He had taught them. He had been with them. He had performed miracles before them. He had promised them that this thing was going to come. And yet they just took off and they ran in the end. They fled. They couldn't stand to be there. And yet, because they were with him, if you look at Acts 4, as the apostles are out there and they're being used of God to really really explode this thing called the church as he goes from a few hundred to a few thousand to more thousand. It's just taking over to the point that the religious leaders are saying, these people have turned the whole world upside down. You remember in Acts 4, it says this. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That is everything. That is everything. No matter how broken you are, no matter how faithless you are, no matter how much spiritual understanding you lack, no matter how uncommitted you are, that if you would just be with Jesus and trust yourself to Jesus Christ fully. We saw what happened when somebody was half in and half out. See Judas. We saw what happened when somebody tried to take hold of the reins by themselves. See much of Peter's life. It's only when you entrust yourself to Jesus like a clay to a potter, and you say, I am nothing. I'm a lump of clay. I am nothing. I'm the worst clay that ever was. But I trust you to make something from this. You have said that I would be a stone, a living stone that you would make into this glorious temple. Now I'm yours and I'm completely yours. 
Ring me out and hang me up wet. Whatever this looks like, I give myself completely and totally to you. That's the promise that we find here in these apostles. Because, no, you're not an apostle. You're not sent out with the same kind of authority. People aren't going to be hanging on you everywhere, but you are a disciple. And the call to be a disciple is very much the same. Be with Christ. Just be with him. Quit worrying about what you're going to be. Quit worrying about what he's going to make of you. Quit worrying about what the end of this road looks like and just say, I just want to be with you, Christ Jesus. I want to hang on your words. I want to hear your teaching. I want to be alone with you in my prayer closet. I want to walk with you at every step. But that's where this falls apart for so many of us. We come to Jesus in faith knowing we're nothing. We believe we become something, and then we try to take off and run. We try to get out ahead of him. I got, the, I got it from here, Jesus. Just get out of my way. And yet at every moment and every way, what we need more than anything else is to be with him. And I long for the day when people look at me. I, I, called, my, uh, I called my college roommate um, the other day. I hadn't talked to him in like uh, 10 years, probably. Eight or 10 years. And this is a man that I spent just 23 hours a day with probably. We had classes together, football together, exercising. We were together. He knows me. He knows me. He, he can tell you some stories. We hadn't talked. A lot's changed in my life in 10 years. And he, he told me that his mother told him on Easter, hey, you need to get on, the, uh, you need to get on Facebook and watch Seal on, uh, on Easter. And he said, watch him what? And she said, well, watch him preach. And he said, who would let that dude be a preacher? I, I long for the day when somebody comes and they say, I knew that dude before. He, he must have been with Jesus. There's no explanation for this. Doesn't it? He's been with Jesus. Father God, we love you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, for your just glorious promises. Promises that rest not in our own abilities, not in our own faithfulness, not in our own strength, not in our own commitment but that your every promise, every single promise finds its yes and amen in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to trust in that. Father, forgive us for the times when we've tried to grasp onto those promises while going around your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see what it truly means to be with Jesus and change us as a result. Father, if there's any joining with us this morning that have not taken that step, they've heard people call them to follow after Christ, but they don't even know what that begins to look like. Father, would you use this faith family to walk alongside them? Give them the courage, the transparency to raise their hand and say, I, I don't know. I don't know what this looks like. I don't even know where my Bible is. I haven't been to church in years. Father, use us to encourage them, to strengthen them, and to press them deeper into a true life-changing relationship with your son. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.